When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast. The Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Online, on DAB and on the talk radio app. Talk Radio. First up, let's talk to uh, Robert Jenrick, Housing Communities and Local Government Secretary and uh, MP for Newark, which is in Tier 3 this morning. Good, Well, as of next week. Good morning to you, Robert. Hi, good morning, Good Julia. morning. Um, I'm a little bit confused this morning. I've been paying attention an awful lot to everything everyone's been saying. And I remember distinctly that the Prime Minister said we had to have a lockdown because the tiered approach wasn't working, even though we had a tiered approach to avoid a lockdown. We had a lockdown anyway. Yesterday at the press conference, he said the tiered approach was working and that's why we were returning to it. Was the tiered approach working or not? The, the tiered approach was working, Julia. Why did we have a and lockdown think- then? And most people, I think, agree that it's right to take a localised, proportionate approach rather than a blanket national lockdown. But what we did learn from the former tiered approach was that some of the tiers just weren't strong enough to have the desired effect. And so if you want to have this localised approach, you've got to make sure the tiers are sufficiently robust to do the job. And that means slightly stronger restrictions in tier two and in tier three of the kind that we've set out. And I appreciate that's very difficult. But if we can make that work, then it does mean that we shouldn't need a third national lockdown, which none of us would want to see. And it should mean that the country can be steered through the final few months before the vaccine programme takes over and gets us back to a more normal way of living. So a third national lockdown is now the next threat we're facing if we're not good. No, I'm saying that if we can make the tiered approach work, then we can ward off that threat and we can ensure that this approach gets us through to the point where we're able to return to something akin to normality. But Boris Johnson said yesterday the tiered approach approach was working and we know the tiered approach was working. We know even in Liverpool, for instance, in early October when Liverpool was in tier two that the infection rate was already going down and not sort of vaguely going down. You can see the graph yourself, official data, it was absolutely plummeting down. Uh, That was long before they went into tier three. So we know that it was working. Well, the advice of SAGE, who reviewed the tiered approach over the November period, was that the uh, measures that we had in place in tier three, as it was, were working in most parts of the country, although not all. And it could be it could benefit from being slightly stronger. Uh, Remember, we were in the old tier three. We had a baseline and then we asked local areas to consider whether they wanted to go above that. Some places did. uh, Some places didn't. This approach 
has a uniform tier three for all those parts of the country that have to be part of it. Uh, and it is slightly stronger than the old well, baseline. And it should mean that if you're in that, then you will be on a path to de-escalation at the next review point or, or one shortly thereafter and be moving down the tiers rather than playing catch up as we were seeing in the past. Okay. And there will be a meaningful review after 14 days, which will be on the 16th of December. And so for many parts of the country, particularly those which have been uh, widely reported as being quite finely balanced judgments, there will be an opportunity to come down the tiers then before Christmas. Yes, the Prime Minister said your tier is not your destiny. Every area has the means of escape. We'll come on to the mass testing aspect first of all. Have you seen the evidence for why each individual area, city, region is put into their individual tiers? We know there are some areas they've got much lower rates of infection and going down in, put into tier three, whereas others in tier two have higher. Uh, we've seen some areas, it's a whole, whole counties like uh, Kent being put into tier three, whereas other parts of the world, uh, just a, a city or a town has been put into tier three and local areas is in tier two. Have you seen the actual categorical evidence and, and is that evidence going to be published before the vote in the House of Commons on Tuesday? Uh, well, the I have seen evidence. We, we have already published both the five tests which were used to judge where an area was allocated within the tiers and a rationale as to why that particular place sits within that tier. Uh, the tests were assessed by the scientists that advise us working with the local directors of public health who've got the knowledge on the ground. And that's the way each of the review points also every 14 days will operate in the and future. You, and you don't think that local mayors might have a, a viewpoint and some input worth having because local mayors have told us that they, uh, they were not asked or consulted on any basis whatsoever. Is it not possible that a directly elected local mayor of any city in this country, any region, might perhaps have some local input and data that might, they might think that was worth considering? Well, their, their views are welcome. And no, they, they weren't welcome, though, were they? They weren't considered. The, they, their views were welcomed. When? Uh, the, the route to do that is through your local directors of public health, who are the health professionals in each area. Oh, and so local, oh I'm sorry. Can I just, I just want to clarify. So unelected public health officials, you'll listen to them, but you won't listen to the directly elected mayors of some of our greatest cities. I just want to clarify. Is that what you're saying? Well, we do listen to the elected when? mayors of cities. Well, when? many. Well, Andy Burnham many... said he wasn't listened to. Well, I, I'm not. I'm not sure whether Andy Burnham uh, made contact. He, as far as I'm aware, he didn't make contact with me. But many of the other elected mayors did speak to me and uh, made their views known. Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, for example, Andy Street, the mayor of the West Midlands. But this is a public health decision. It's not primarily a political decision. Isn't it? It's one that should. It's one that should be guided. It's a ministerial decision, but one informed by the public health advice. And so it's the local directors of public health who are the ones who have the it's, statutory it's... responsibility. And so local council leaders and members of parliament and others are in constant contact with their directors of public health, making their views known, looking at the local evidence. And that then is used to make these decisions. But it's not just a public health matter, is it? And this is something you know I've been asking for. And you confirmed that before the lockdown, we didn't actually have any, there was no internal proper cost benefit analysis, impact assessment of the wider cost. When we make decisions to cut at all costs, risks from catching and dying of COVID, we have a, a wider cost uh, to people of uh, other health problems. Uh, more people dying as we now, we now have seen clearly from the first lockdown from other causes. 
We know the massive economic impact. This is, as you say, a political decision. Surely those wider impacts should be known. Are we going to see publication before next Tuesday, the vote in the House of Commons, when MPs have to agree to all this, an analysis, a full cost-benefit analysis of the wider costs of these uh, decisions? Yeah, well, you'll, you'll be pleased to hear that we will be publishing an analysis that has been conducted of the health, the social and the economic consequences of the tiered approach. And so that will be available for you, for members of the public and for MPs. When's that? Consider. Uh, I don't have the exact data, but it'll be in the coming days. I mean, no it, it must have been it must have been compiled already because that's surely what you base the, the decision on. So why can't it be published now? Or is it just going to be cobbled together after the fact? Well, it's, it, there, there is an analysis and it's going to be published in the coming days. So you'll have to wait just Why a little bit longer. Why can't it be but, published but, now? Well, it will be, it will be being Put published. It, and it will enable the, the debate uh, in Parliament to be informed by that analysis. But the decision on the tiers is primarily a public health decision. It is looking at what is the rate of infection in any particular area? What's happening to the over 60s, the people most likely to be unwell? What's going on in local hospitals? what's happening for the, the um, testing programme, what's the rate of positivity where people are being tested. Those are the core decisions and you know pieces of information that are then used to form a balanced judgment about what's going on in any particular area. OK, but um, as Tim Spector from King's College, who's been carrying out the Zoe uh, study, which has been one of the biggest studies and it's proved to be very accurate when you, as compared with the ONS data when it actually comes out. They've said uh, places like, like, for instance, like London, key rates for new cases are over 60s. Uh, they haven't changed in five weeks and in many other parts of the country as well. So we're not seeing that. Um, what evidence have you seen that uh, pubs and uh, pubs, particularly pubs that uh, don't serve food, but even those that do serve food and restaurants are driving the increase in cases. Why should hospitality be under so many restrictions? Well, the evidence is not that hospitality is the sole cause of the rate of infection, but undoubtedly for a virus that thrives on social interaction, places where you come together, particularly indoors, where you meet up with people either from your own household or indeed others, are the likely places where the virus uh, will thrive. And so it's, it's a logical place to consider. I appreciate that's very difficult and there are hard choices at play here. We've chosen to ensure that education can remain open. We've chosen to ensure that workplaces can remain open, although we're asking people to work from home. Uh, if well, they workplaces can. can remain open if they're not involved in hospitality. That's right. But that's, you know, the vast majority of the population are able to either work from home or go to work if it's in, okay. uh, you know, manufacturing, agriculture, food processing, the settings where you obviously can't work from home. Okay. So um, we let... entirely appreciate this is very difficult for hospitality. We are trying to put in place support like the furlough scheme, the business grants and the discretionary schemes that local councils now have at their disposal. And hospitality is able to trade through takeaway and delivery services that we put in place back in March. But as we know, a lot of those aren't, aren't viable. Just finally, I know you have to go. It's nine o'clock, but um, we're told that mass testing is the route out. The Prime Minister said yesterday that uh, uh, we get out of your tiers. It's not your destiny. We're through mass testing the same way that Liverpool escaped tier three. Um, Liverpool's uh, infection rate was going down a month before uh, testing was brought in. I say before even tier three. Other areas nearby didn't have any mass testing, these rapid uh, lateral flow tests. And their rates also went down. Why do you believe that mass testing is the route out of this tier system? Well, the Prime Minister and the uh, Chief Medical Officer have been clear that this is a tool, it's a weapon in the arsenal of a local area that wants to 
bring the rate of infection down. This is a new approach. Uh, there is reason to believe that it works, that it makes an impact. But that evidence will build with time as we do this in more parts of the country. We're not mandating it. It's available to local authorities that find themselves in tier three to use if they want to. And a number have already contacted me saying that they do want to do it because they want to strain every sinew, pull every lever that's available to them to try to help their local area. But, but wasn't actually what I asked. I mean, how, how is mass testing the route out if mass testing wasn't the reason why infections went down in Liverpool? Well, the advice that I've received is that it was a contributing factor. It couldn't have been a to, contributing to factor the because the rates were going down and it plummeted down a month before mass testing was brought in. I can, if you want, I can, I can send you, uh, I can send you the graph of official government data that shows that. Yeah, so, I mean, I've unless you, the, unless I've mass testing I've, has a time machine, it couldn't I've, I've have caused those, it. I've seen those graphs, Julia, and it's not so. It the, couldn't be mass testing that caused the forward infections then. Well, no, the mass testing was a contributing factor how? to the success of Liverpool in bringing the rate of infection. No, how, how down could it have been? If so how much. could it have been if most of that fall happened before mass testing was brought in? How is that physically possible? No, what, what, what you're saying is, was it the sole cause? No, no I didn't say because, no. How could it cause it at seen, all? No, we had no, we had no, no, we 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 had contributed to the fall that we've seen. Uh, actually, and after mass testing was brought in, actually there was a plateau. The fall stopped for a few weeks. Well, for, for a week. well it plateaued and then it started to fall again. Yeah, so, so how was mass testing the cause of the fall in infections once again? It could well, not have been, could it? It, it, it was a contributing it factor. It fell from to, over 500 to, to 200. Uh, Julia, I can only tell you what the chief medical officer and the scientific advisors that I've spoken to have said. And I can only tell and you what the data says, the evidence. a difference to the scale of the reduction in the rate of infection that we've seen How? in Liverpool. And it's something, therefore, that's available to other parts of the country who want to deploy it. I think its benefits are clear. It's a way of identifying the asymptomatic uh, people. The asymptomatic who people who don't pass the, the, the infection along, as called as new studies. Is, is well, there, it, with all due respect, is there anything this government does that is based on the actual evidence that the official data provides us with? Is there anything? at all yes. it's based a on evidence well, absolutely julia and and the mass testing work that we're doing like many other countries in the world are pursuing is on the base of the advice of the scientists okay. it's, it, it's a new approach and it's one that local authorities can choose to take right. forward if they wish to across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker talk radio it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Right, well, let's talk about how we get out of these tiers. Well, I suppose even Tier 1 would quite like to get out of it, the rule of six and the like, but at least you can socialise indoors in Cornwall and the Isle of Wight and Silly Isles. Uh, but for us, us, we're told, particularly in Tier 3, you're going to have access to mass testing. Although, having spoken to uh, people representing uh, such areas, they say, well, actually, we haven't been told when we're going to get the tests and how they're going to be rolled out, although we're told the army is on standby. But we're told... This is how Liverpool got out of Tier 3 into Tier 2. Although, as I've been pointing out, tediously regularly this morning, I accept that, tediously regularly, um, all the evidence on the official data is that Liverpool was already seeing mass plummeting. More than half of its infection rate went down in the month before mass testing began. So how on earth can mass testing be the route out of infections? Well, let's talk to an expert on testing, Angela Raffle, uh, who's a public health doctor working in Bristol who has worked with the government national screening programmes. Good morning to you, Angela. Good morning, morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, uh, we've been told again and again by the government that testing is the absolute key um, early on in the pandemic and then once we realised it was a, a sort of out of control and then they said mass testing wouldn't work because it was too too widespread for test and trace and the like. We've seen all of these tens and tens of billions of pounds put in the test and trace system and then we had the advent uh, of these new tests, these rapid lateral flow tests. We're told that look these are really quick, simple, easy tests. We rolled them, rolled them out in Liverpool and the idea is you can identify very quickly if somebody uh, is positive or not, they can self-isolate or they can get a negative and know they're safe, for instance, to see a relative in a care home or the like. Now, we're told that mass testing is the root out of these woes we're in right now. Can you tell me, as someone who's an expert in, in screening and mass testing, how that is? People talk about testing like it's a black box, like it's a, just a uniform thing, and that is a million miles from the truth. It all depends who you're testing, with what purpose, what's the whole system. So in an infectious disease situation, you test people with symptoms um, so that you can treat them and so you can stop them infecting others. You test their contacts and then you test groups who pose a high risk to vulnerable people, for example, staff or visitors um, in care homes or working on a ward full of immunocompromised people. You test when there's an outbreak. But what's different about what the government proposed, and we only know they proposed it because the plans were leaked in September and it was called Moonshot. They're proposing testing everybody, society-wide, healthy people, without symptoms or who haven't been in contact. That's the bit of the plan which I think has been hyped beyond, beyond 
reasonable scientific expectations and that's what's worrying me. And that's the concern and this goes far beyond the, the there have been concerns expressed all summer and again a lot of people deriding these but again these concerns have been raised in courts around the, the world about the PCR testing different from the rapid flow test um, but that the the the, 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 uh, the false positive rate the concern of course you know when you are testing people who are already have symptoms or uh, are highly at risk and when there's a, a lot of people with the, with the, the infection then you're you, then the, the positive rate is a tiny, tiny fraction of those who get positive. If, however, the, the infection rate is incredibly low, around the same rate as the false positive rate, very difficult to tell which is a, a true positive and which is a false one. But we've got more issues with these rapid tests, haven't we? Because they certainly in, in Liverpool, they've come up with a much lower rate of infection than we were previously told there was. Now, the testing itself doesn't cause the fall in infection. So what does that tell us? So we're all used to the idea that if you've got a new medicine or a new vaccine, you don't just start using them on the general public. You have to do careful evaluation in a true life setting, you know, a field setting, before you get your license and your regulation. And with tests and devices, we have a much weaker evaluation framework. And I think people are tempted to think, oh, well, tests can't possibly be harmful. But actually, we've learned, I mean, we've 100 years of doing screening programs on healthy people. And if you look back to the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, they did a lot of harm because people didn't know what the tests were measuring. Um, people weren't properly informed about what they were letting themselves in for. And you ended up doing harmful treats, treatments on people and no benefit. So tests need as careful evaluation as medicines and vaccines. So the rapid flow tests are very welcome. It's brilliant that the innovation is happening. But the way this is being implemented is really confusing. So one moment the government says, um, this is a service, we're rolling it out. And then the next moment they say, oh, no, no, no. In fact, they said at the select committee on the two days ago um, that these tests aren't formally in use and they're undergoing very stringent evaluation. But they are in use in Liverpool, Martha Tibville, um, in every university. And what's really tragic is the UK has, since 1996, this really strong um, system of expertise for advising ministers on testing in healthy people, and it's called the National Screening Programmes and the National Screening Committee, and it's been completely bypassed. Um, but why do you think that is? Well, it feels like the government just decided it would be a good idea to test everybody and they were worried that the National Screening Committee might turn around and say actually this really carefully it could actually lead to an increase in transmission if you tell tell the negatives that they're safe because you'll be missing a lot of cases um, and it probably will add very little above the test and trace because that narrow time window when you really want to find an unknown infectious person is probably only about 24 hours. So it will also be hugely costly because to look for something that only lasts 24 hours, you'd have to test people, everybody daily, you know, and you, you start to add up the cost of that. And that's why the government estimated for itself that it would cost £100 billion. So they kind of, they seem to be rolling it out whilst pretending they're not doing it because it hasn't been scrutinised. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. 
Talk Radio. Let's uh, talk now about how the hospitality sector is going to fare, uh, particularly in places that are under tier three measures where, basically, they're not even allowed to open up uh, under the new measures to be announced post lockdown from December the 2nd. Greater Manchester is one of the great cities that is affected by that new law and new rules. And Sasha Lord is the nighttime economy advisor for Greater Manchester, and he joins us now. Good morning to you, Sasha. Good morning, Julie. Well, How are you? You're very well. Well, there was good news for London and Liverpool and uh, other parts of the country yesterday, but Greater Manchester and Birmingham, I think, were the first two cities we found out about which were going to go into Tier 3, along with Bristol and, I mean, just a huge number of other uh, big cities and, indeed, many rural areas as well. Um, but how much of a hit is being put into Tier 3 for your nighttime economy? It is ab- it's massive. Um, I can't tell you how, how big a deal this is. And I, my language has tried to be quite diplomatic over the last few weeks. But, you know, I, I can't hold back on my words anymore. You know, the government has stabbed the sector in the back. It's that simple. They've asked us to spend millions and millions of pounds putting these new measures in place to remain closed. And I, I think now that the whole of the UK, not just Greater Manchester, I think the whole of the UK realise that this government have got it wrong when it comes to hospitality. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? They were told, you know, if you put all these screens and you take a load of tables out and you do this, and you do that and table service, not bar service, then things would be safe. We did see, didn't we, 4th of July, pubs, restaurants, bars reopened. We saw no spike whatsoever. You can look at the graphs for every single area, even places like Devon and Cornwall, where there were hundreds of thousands of people racing down uh, the bars and the restaurants absolutely packed in an area they hadn't seen any any infections previously we did not see any rise whatsoever in infections even the test and trace evidence suggests it's something like less than four percent of cases traced back uh, to a pub or a restaurant and again certainly not the pubs or restaurants where people are actually you know strict enforcement of those social distancing rules why do you think everyone is so keen for bars, pubs and restaurants to be blamed? And in particular, as we see in tier two, bars or pubs that don't serve a substantial meal with a pint or a glass of wine. Why is everyone so keen without any evidence whatsoever to blame the hospitality sector? I I don't think they are. I think there's a a small amount in the cabinet that are making these decisions. We have said consistently since March, work with hospitality and we will help you understand exactly how it works. We've offered the advice and we've consistently been ignored. It just does not make any sense at all. Why can I walk into my local supermarket and watch people pick packages up, pick tins up, look at dates, put them down, walk around freely? Shopping centres, people can walk around freely. You can walk into your hairdressers while somebody's ruffling their fingers through your hair. At the same time, you cannot walk into a restaurant through a one-way system and sit at a table that's socially distanced two metres away, that's cleaned every hour, it's got hand sanitizer on the table. It just does not make any sense at all. And I'm sorry, you know, there is a chance that possibly places in Greater Manchester could reopen in, in Tier 2 come the 16th if, they, they, if they're serving substantial food. And the R rate in Greater Manchester is dropping off a cliff. Yeah. And I think come the 16th, we'll see whether they decide to play politics. Um, but I'm speaking to pub owners who, who serve food as well. And they're saying, look, the government don't understand it. At the moment, the breweries aren't brewing because they've had to throw hundreds of thousands of pounds of worth of beer away. You can't just open a pub up at the click of a finger. You have to order the barrels in. You've got to staff it. You've got to restock it. And there's a chance that potentially because of this five day 
Christmas break, they're going to shut us down again immediately after. So dead people are saying we're not going to bother. Um, it, it's just ill thought out. It's ridiculous. It really is ridiculous. But, but even in tier two, we've been talking to representative of the hospitality industry, Kate Nichols, who is pointing out that actually three quarters of pubs and restaurants aren't aren't viable, even in even in tier two as well, simply because you've got people. If you're not allowed to mix with another household, you know, it's just you know, husband and wife. I mean, me and my husband, we're going to go out to dinner next week in London because we're allowed to, but we're not allowed to go out with anybody else. And there comes a point when you're going to go, well, you know, we've we've had that conversation. You know, people go out to restaurants and bars and pubs. To be with other people. If you're not allowed to do that, it doesn't really become something people do. No, you're right, Julia. But how about this? So if you're in tier two, you can actually go to for, for lunch or for dinner and you can see social activity at other tables and you can buy drinks. But actually, what about those wet lead pubs? Those pubs that are, are local community pubs, the pubs that don't serve food. You know, those pubs will not make it till spring. They won't. And the majority of those pubs in Greater Manchester are actually in our most deprived areas, the areas where the lowest paid people work. So it feels to us almost like an attack on class culture. You know, why is it right that some people can't? afford a meal can see social activity whilst the lowest paid can't? And I was speaking to a landlady on Wednesday in one of our most deprived areas. And she was saying to me, you know, she only pulled out £200 a week as a wage. She has elderly people that come in there, they've lost their partners who they've been married to all their lives. And they sit there, they buy a pint and they talk for two, two and a half hours. And they are socially distant. And that is the moment that they look forward to. And those community pubs, it's not just about the pub. It's not just about buying a pint. It's there to support people's mental health. Absolutely. It's for for them to get out. And it's just, it is wrong. I'm sorry, this government are absolutely clueless. They really are. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.